0: I had something else in mind to speak on tonight, but while we were in worship, I felt this very strongly, so I'm going to go with it. Is that all right? Okay, before we start, I want you to say something with me because this is going to be the premise of the whole message. This is the foundation of everything we're going to talk about. Say this with me. Say, until Until we've realized realized the the presence of God, we've done nothing. Say it again. Say, until we've realized the presence of God, we've done nothing. So, until we've realized the presence of God, we've done nothing, which means everything depends upon the presence of Jesus. The presence of the Lord causes everything to come to life. Without his presence, there's nothing alive. If you remove light from this room, there's only darkness. And so it is, wherever Christ is not present, no matter how good things are, they're lifeless and dead. Jesus says, I am the way, because he knew you, and he knew me, and he knew he'd try to find a way and forget him. And so he says, I am the way. You say, Eric, who, who would try to find a way and forget him? Well, it's happening all the time. Trying to figure out some way to get stuff done without realizing his presence. Jesus knew you and he knew me. So he called himself the truth because he knew what we would do. We would try to find truths and forget him who is the truth. So he says, I am the truth. People are seeking truths like crazy, but it's Jesus and Jesus alone, his realized present person that is truth. No matter how correct something is, doesn't mean it's truth. You say, what does that even mean? Jesus is the truth, the living Christ, the experienced person who is alive from the dead. Praise God. Jesus knew you and he knew me and he knew we would hang on to something religious or spiritual and forget him. So he calls himself the life. In other words, if you don't have me, my presence, it doesn't matter how spiritual it is, doesn't matter how religious it is, it's dead without me. Until we've realized the presence of God, we've done nothing. 2 Samuel chapter 21, listen to this. Um, It was there, uh, uh, days of famine. Now, right here, David, for three years, there was famine. Now, hereby, year by year, year after year, whatever your version says, David sought the presence of the Lord. Stop for a second. This is the characteristic of the man who is after God's own heart. The one who the scripture tells us he fulfilled all God's purposes in his generation. So you have a guy who has a a label nobody else has except himself, which is a man after God's own heart. He fulfills God's purposes in his generation. He takes refuge in the Lord, and he's thirsting for God. Most of our devotional language comes from him and his personal relationship with God. Year by year, David sought the presence of the Lord. You say, Eric, what's this first point that you're trying to say underneath until we've realized the presence of God, we've done nothing? It's this, that David had such a desire for God that it was the presence that was his pursuit every year, year by year by year. A New Year's revolution, a resolution by David would be this, the presence of the Lord. Hallelujah. Next year, what's your New Year's resolution? The presence of God. Oh, <laughs> because he knows until we've realized the presence of God, we've done nothing. You say, this is a pretty cool little statement, but what really drives the point home? Well, this chapter... David goes through and wins the war against all the giants. One of them had 24 fingers that they fought against. He was massive. He was a descendant of Nephilim. He was a massive giant. And one of them that's killed in here is, is a giant. You say, I thought Goliath was the only giant. Well, you need to read a little bit more of First uh, and Second Samuel. You'll see there's a bunch of them. As a matter of fact, it is thought by theologians that when David went to the, the brook to get the stone to kill Goliath, he grabbed uh, five stones, and not one. He grabbed five. It didn't. It wasn't because he thought he was going to miss. It's because Goliath had four brothers. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm not just going to kill him. I'm killing them all. So we have David has this desire for God year after year. But what happens here after he he destroys all these giants and stuff? It says this is the song, chapter twenty two, verse one. Because you know there's no chapter break, so it just continues. So it says. This is the song that David wrote after God delivered all his enemies into his hands. So here's the point. David's pursuit was God's presence year by year, and he gained victory over all his enemies. So it will be with you. So it will be with me. If we pursue God's presence year after year, we will gain victory over enemy after enemy after enemy until every enemy has been delivered into our hands. No matter how many fingers they have, no matter how big they are. Year after year, David sought the presence of the Lord. And this is the song he sang when God delivered him from all his enemies. Praise God. My first point underneath this, until we've realized the presence of God, we've done nothing, is that seeking the presence of the Lord is how you gain victory. It isn't even trying to directly fight things. It is by seeking the presence of the Lord you gain the power to fight them, if you will. So that's number one. Now, point number two. Turn over to Exodus chapter 33. I don't hear any pages. That must mean there's a lot of phones. (laughs) (laughs) That's the days we're living in. When When I was growing up, they would say, turn in your Bible, all you hear is everywhere because there was no, there was no phones. Okay. So look at this chapter 33. Let's just do 12. Let's just read 12 through, through 16. Is that right? This is so amazing. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you're going to send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, God said, my presence shall go with you and give you rest. Praise God. Mm. Praise God. Can I just put a side note in here? John Piper wrote this to the degree our praise is is without feeling, we diminish the one that we praise. Recently, I've been seeing that praise is not something you do as much as it is something that happens to you. When you begin to think about who God is, you think about what the word says and you believe it, praise is the inevitable result. I praise you, God. Even reading these words right here, if you believe that you look at them, you think on them, and you believe them, it causes you to say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Praise you, God. Maybe you, you find yourself in situations and circumstances sometimes, and it's like super difficult. Recall your God and you will praise. Praise isn't something you do to, to try to, to, to try to make something happen. Praise is happening. When God is seen. I remember Tony Kemp told me one time, he says, Eric, recognize this, that worship is a result of revelation. In other words, you don't just worship, you see him and you worship by default. You see what he's like, you see what he says of himself, you believe that. And the only response there is, is, dear God, you're amazing. I praise you. So even as I'm reading those words, my presence shall go with you and give you rest. I want you to notice, this is also a side note, how presence and rest are connected. Because His His presence brings so much rest into your mind, into your heart, into your will, into your body. God brings rest. His presence brings rest. Most people are worn out because they don't spend time in the presence that gives rest. Are you following me? Jesus kind of recalls this statement right here when he says, come to me, I'll give you rest. In other words, I'm the presence of God. You come to me, I give to you rest. My presence will go with you and give you rest. Presence and rest are linked. They are inseparable, praise God. I love that. I've been finding that peace is so important in life. Have you been seeing this even like in the last couple of years, that peace is very important and that that is what the devil wants to destroy in people's lives is peace? You wonder why Paul writes his letters and he says, grace and peace be unto you. What's he doing? He's recalling the number six blessing, which is the the Lord bless you. And keep you. He causes face to shine upon you. He, he actually is gracious unto you. So you see this peace and grace in the, 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 the number six blessing. And Paul is recalling that in front of the churches. And he's blessing them. Grace and peace. Peace is so important. Let me tell you how important peace is. Peace is the chosen attribute that God assigns to the crushing of Satan. May the God of peace soon crush Satan under your feet. He could have used any of his attributes. He's got a lot of them. But he says peace crushes the devil. Isn't that incredible? The peace of God will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Peace guards you. It literally is a shield that God is holding. You know, sometimes we try to go to counseling and things, and we try to learn different ways to think, and it's we got our little shield trying to guard our minds. Let God's shield guard your mind (laughs) by the peace that he himself gives. Jesus says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, but my peace. It comes from his presence. It comes from his person. The fruit of the Spirit, the result of the Spirit is love, joy peace. You know, in 1 Thessalonians 5, your sanctification is connected to peace. It says, may the the, the the God of peace himself sanctify you, Holy Spirit, soul, and body. So the God of peace, it's peace in your mind that is setting you apart. Are you following me? Your, your mind gets set apart from the way other people think because you have the peace of God in it. Your your emotions are different than anybody else's because you have the peace of God in them. How? Because of his presence. As a matter of fact, he goes on and he says here, then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up. He sees, Moses sees how important the presence is. He's like, we don't stand a, a chance. We don't have a shot without your presence, God. I wonder if God would tonight freshly, put in you and I a dependence upon his presence where we would say, Lord, I can't even pump gas without you. I can't drive down I-4. I- well, that's, that's in Florida. What, I don't know what your highways are. 480 or something? Or is it 430? Yeah. I can't drive 430 without you. I can't go to, to, to Tacos for Life without you. You know what I mean? I, I need you so badly, God. I'm finding in my life, That I'm realizing again and again, we never graduate from dependency. I need you so bad. I need your presence so bad. I don't need just, I don't need just theologies about you. I need your presence. As A.W. Tozer would say, the conscious presence of God. He uses this phrase because it's easy to just kind of recognize that God's presence is everywhere. The scriptures tell us this, that even if I make my bed and shield, there you are. You can't get away from him. As Hannah Whitall Smith wrote in her wonderful classic Christian secret of a happy life, she says, people are always trying to enter God's presence. But when I read the Bible, I realize you can't get out of it. She's trying to show you something that it's not about an incantation. It's about a recognition of who he is. He is presence. Remember, Paul is preaching the gospel and then he goes, he's not far from you he's right here in him we live move and have our being and what happens is by the gospel and faith you access a a a reality that's already present god is here and i did not even know it how did jacob have that revelation that that phrase that i just said comes from genesis chapter 28 when jacob listen to this lays his head on a rock isn't that symbolic Jesus Christ is the rock of our salvation. He p- applies his mind to Christ and his eyes open. As soon as his eyes shut on the outside with his, his head, his mind applied to Christ, his eyes open and see another world. And what does he see? He sees angels ascending and descending. Oh, what does that remind you of? Jesus talking to Nathanael. He says, you'll see angels ascending and descending upon the son of man. So uh, Jacob applies his mind to Christ in rest. (laughs) He applies his mind to Christ in rest, his eyes open, and he sees Jesus. You say, no, no, he sees angels ascending and descending. No, no, keep reading. It says the Lord was above them all. I love angelic activity, but the Lord is above them all. Praise God. I love all the things that happen, but the Lord is above them all. And this is what he sees. And after he sees it, he says the statement, the Lord is in this place, and I didn't even know it. If you apply your mind to Christ, your eyes shall open, and you will recognize he is with you always, even to the end of the age. Praise God. So he goes on here and he says, this dependency if you your presence doesn't go up with us then do not lead us up from here for how then can it be known that i have found favor in your sight i and your people look at this is it not by your going with us so that we i and your people may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth He's saying, it is your presence that is my separation. I'm different than the world because of this one fact. I have the presence of the Lord in my life. Does that make sense? Now, you know the word holy just means sanctified or set aside, right? For instance, uh, in the temple, everything is holy, the scripture says. So if this, this phone is in the temple, it's dedicated to God. So that phone is holy unto God. It's separated unto God. Does that make sense to you? So the sanctification, being holy, set apart, pulled out of the whole for the benefit of the whole, in essence, is the presence of the Lord in your life. Everything you have, your whole person, your body, as a matter of fact, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That means you are separated from everybody else who does not have the presence. This is why Paul says, this is why you shouldn't sin sexually. Because you, your body is different. Your body's been separated, set aside for a whole new purpose. And what is that purpose? The presence of God. We live and move in, in, and have our being in the conscious presence of the Lord that gives peace to our hearts. It is our sanctification. It is our rest. His presence, Him, actually, not just theologically, actually is everything needed. He is way. He is truth. He is life. He is bread. He is water. He's medicine. He's way. I'm telling you, this is the, the reality that we have. It's better that we have our eyes on His presence than even knowing what to do sometimes we want to know what to do God tell me what to do tell me what to do and it's more important that he his presence has all of your attention than you even knowing what to do otherwise God would have just told Abraham go that way until you see seven camels and that's the land you know like give him directions he didn't He called him out to somewhere he didn't even know. God didn't share with him where he was going. And it wasn't that God didn't know where they were going to end up. It was that he knew and he didn't want to tell him because he wanted the focus to be walking with him than just getting to the destination. Because God desires to be your, your, your life supply, life dash supply. He wants to be with you. He wants to walk in stride with you. The scripture says, may the fellowship of the spirit be with you all. And this is the end of second Corinthians where there's all kinds of problems. <laughs> In other words, the presence of God is a gift, not because you are perfect. It's a gift that makes you perfect. <laughs> Some people are like trying to be as, as, as good as Jesus so that they can, they can earn the ability to have God's presence. No, no, no. You can't earn his presence. His presence is the gift of the gospel. It's, it's based upon somebody else. And that's why no matter where you think you are, or how good you think you're doing, His presence is yours. May the fellowship of His presence, His Spirit, be with you all. I remember one time a guy said to me, Eric, you emphasize the presence of God too much. He goes, as a matter of fact, if you look at the New Testament, the presence of the Lord isn't really mentioned very much. I mean, maybe Acts, where it's just times of refreshing in the, in the, in the presence of God will come. But where else do you see the, the presence mentioned? I thought to myself, I'm like, huh, that's interesting. Then I said to him, do you see the Holy Spirit mentioned in the New Testament? He goes, everywhere. I said, what makes you think that the Holy Spirit is not God's presence in the world today? The Holy Spirit is God's presence. It's, it's not like they're like each other. It's the same exact thing. He is the presence of the Lord. Praise God. So when we say things like the the fruit of the Spirit is, that's the fruit of His presence in your life. And it's not just, like I said, theological presence. He's theologically with me. I have theological peace, I have theological joy. You know, it's like we have, this, we have this weird way as humans to try to get out of experience. We're doing everything we can, even in Christianity, just to get out of actual experience. Because experience is where the line is drawn in the sand. Do you have it or do you not? Because a lot of times we'll just open up the Bible and we'll look at the Bible and we'll just say, well, that's, that's mine, I claim it, that's mine. I have no experience of it whatsoever, but that's mine and I claim it. There's something wrong here. He's alive from the dead. He is with you and he doesn't give you a peace you cannot feel. Or a joy you can. Are you interested in getting a joy that you can't feel? Yeah. <laughs> Raise your hand if you want peace you can't feel. You just want you want theoretical peace. Theoretically I have peace. Listen, people are fighting feelings, and I can't stand it because I can't get away from them in the scriptures. They're everywhere. Paul is even saying things like this. He says, may, may the God of hope fill you with all peace and joy in believing. Just believing. You enter into the experience. The kingdom of heaven is even, it's not even a matter of what you can tell me. But of righteousness, peace, and joy. <laughs> it's experiential all the way. It's not just what somebody can say with their mouth. It's what is the reality in their life. Let's put it, let me put it to you like this. Let's say this, this, this phone right here is a, an explosive. Okay. And, and I hand it to one of you in the room and I tell you it's an explosive, but you don't believe me because you don't know anything about explosives. You don't even know what to look for. You hold it in your hand. You're like, okay, it's an explosive. Got you. You don't believe me, so there's no feeling whatsoever. But if you know something about explosives, and I hand you this phone, and you know by the weight, and you know by the smell of it, and you can see a couple of lines in there, whatever, that you know that it is an explosive, and you believe that it is an explosive, you're going to feel something when you're holding that thing in your hand. You're going to be like, literally, you're going to act different. You're going to be like, oh, goodness, this could blow me to smithereens right now. Because you believe it. But here's the thing. We believe that with practical things. But if you believe what the Bible says, you're going to feel something. It's not that I look at it, and I'm just like, I would only look at this book Read what it says about God, Christ, what Christ has done, where everything is going, what Paul tells us to look out for, what Peter is saying to look at with like a lamp that shines in a dark place. When you look at the scriptures, you read about David, you read about Elijah, you read about Enoch, you read about these guys, and you don't really believe it. It's filed in the realm of Santa Claus. You'll be (laughs) ho-hum. But if you believe this book, it will rattle your bones, when you think about an angel who puts one foot on the sea and one foot on the land, and he has a, a book in his hand, and he speaks, and the entire earth shakes. Not, not an earthquake. This is, a, this is more than that, because it's not just a, a section of the earth. It's the entire planet moves. And this angel worships Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's just crazy. You start thinking about these things, and you it just blows your mind. You start looking at the Bible and you believe it. You start feeling faith rise up inside of you. For instance, the Scripture says he makes he makes storehouses for the snow. It says that he rides on the winds of the the wings of the wind. The Scripture says he makes every blade of grass grow. The Scripture tells us that he tells the lion to wait in the thicket. The Bible tells us also that he guides the bear with her cubs. I mean, this is incredible. The scripture says that he walks in the recesses of the ocean. What in the world is this? Who is this? The scripture tells us that he makes the storm clouds. uh, I mean, he makes the storm clouds, but he paints the, 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 the sky with his hands or the clouds are his handiwork. You look around and you see what the scriptures say about your God. And that, that, it, that he humbles himself even to look upon the, the heavens, not just the earth. It's humility for God to pay attention to what's going on with the angels. Isn't that crazy? This, it's, it's an act of humility of God to even look upon the earth. But this is how he is. He, not only does he look upon the earth, he comes to dwell with the lowliest. And he loves them so. <laughs> this is crazy to me. And all of this... And you see that same God who put all things together, holds them all together, becomes a human being. He subjects himself to the restrictions and frailties of a human body. That right there can never be matched. Just the fact that he became a human is the highest humiliation, the highest form of condescension. There's nothing that can even come close to it. That he who dwells in light unapproachable is a baby in a manger. This is crazy. And then he offers himself to be beaten, spit on, ridiculed, lashed, bleeding, suffering, dying. He cannot breathe. He's not pretending. He's dying on purpose (laughs) with a goal to take what you deserve from you. He got what you deserve so you can get what he deserves. Charles Spurgeon says, God, I mean, you stand before God as Christ because Christ stood before God as you. Right. Is, that making, is that making sense to you? So you start thinking about these things and it moves the inside, and It makes us believe. So I'm saying his presence is, is the root of all of this. Now, lastly, last um, point is Psalm 30. Sorry, thirty-one, and I think this one is going to hit home because all of us has been through things in the in the last year that are just—I don't know what to say about them. Strange. Has anybody been through something strange in the last t- couple years? Has anybody seen some strange things happening? Verse 20, let's let's look at 19. How great is your goodness, some translations say sweetness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. He's already put it in there. Sweet experiences of his person have been stored away for you. And I'm telling you, you can come with as many bags as you want. You'll never empty this treasure chest. (laughs) You can take as many bags as you want back and it just keeps refilling itself. He has stored up for you sweet experiences of his person if you will fear him. Let me just, can I touch on the fear of the Lord just real quick? The first time the fear of the Lord is ever mentioned in the Bible is Genesis chapter 22. Did you know that? The very first time. And there's this thing called, theologians like to call it, the law of first mention. Now, whether or not you believe it or not, this is what they believe. The first time something is mentioned, that's been established, let it hold on for the rest of the time. So that everything that is said about it afterwards is only an addition to what's already been laid. Does that make sense? So the very first foundation of what the fear of the Lord is, is in Genesis chapter 22. What is it? Well, Me and the lad, Abraham and Isaac, me and the lad are going to go up the mountain to worship. Isn't that interesting? To worship. This is also the first time worship is mentioned in the scripture. There's no music, by the way. Did you notice that? Me and the lad are going to go up the mountain and worship. And this worship looks like this. He raises the knife to kill his son in obedience to God. Now watch this. When he goes to kill his son, God says to him, don't kill him. He says, now I know that you fear me. Do you see it? This is the very first time the fear of the Lord is mentioned. Now I know that you fear me. Now he goes on to describe what it looks like. He says, because you have not withheld from me. Because you have not withheld from me. The fear of the Lord in its very first definition connected even with worship is this. I withhold nothing from you, Lord. Everything is yours. My mind, my will, my body, everything I am. I've been, personally, God has been taking Job, the book of Job, and throwing it through me like a boomerang. It hits me on the way in, and it comes back through me in the back. It has been killing me, this book of Job, because Job loses absolutely everything, and his response is to fall down in worship. He says these f- phrases like this: "Naked I came, naked I'll go." In other words, you, I have I have nothing of my own. You know, I don't claim anything. You know the the major thing in America right now, in American, uh, the the American. I don't know, I don't want I don't want to step on toes. Okay, the what's happened? The problem is, the problem is, entitlement yeah. is the problem. Yeah. All of the stuff has this weird smell of entitlement. These words that Job say, naked I came, naked I go, remove that completely. Then he goes on and he says this, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, watch this, blessed be the name of the Lord. In other words, he has what's called by the old mystics, disinterested love. You say, what does that mean? It means he wants God just for God, not what God can do. Yeah, yeah we love God's blessings. The scriptures tells us he richly gives us all things to enjoy. He, he is this way. He loves to bless us. He, he, he showers Abraham with a million gifts without because he knew Abraham really only wanted one thing. He wouldn't hold anything from God. We see David is blessed. God blesses us. But there's something about A disinterested love that says, I want you for you. So now we get to the scripture that I've been been trying to get to. So he says, which you have wrought for those who take refuge in you before the sons of men. You hide them. You hide them in the secret place of your presence from the conspiracies of men. I need to hide in him because there are the conspiracies of men going on. Now let's just talk about this word conspiracies of men. It's the things that men do with thought behind them. Bob Gladstone told me one time, he said, Lord, he said to the Lord, Lord, I want to die to myself. And the Lord says to him, don't worry, I'm sending people to help you. (laughs) God has this way about him. Whether you want to believe this or not, reading through one Christian biography on top of what you see in the scriptures, God has this way about him. He puts the perfect kind of people around you to do things to you to break things off you he has this way of putting people in your life just to see if you can overcome their influence he has this way of surrounding you with the perfect storm to see whether or not it's going to get all these rough edges off isn't it interesting? I remember uh, this, this person came into my life, and I told my wife, I said, this person's been sent by God because they really do get on my nerves. <laughs> and then she says to me, she goes, why do you think that's sent from God? I said, because there's a lot of problems in me. <laughs> the reason why the person gets on my nerves is because I'm still alive. Yeah. You see, it, it, Francis Finalone said this, Only the places that hurt are still alive. So if God wants to strike you in an area, he can strike you in an area, but if that area is is alive, you're gonna feel some pain there. And God is into this thing. He wants to make you like Jesus, who can get his beard plucked and the, the blood punched out of his mouth, bleeding from his back, naked in front of people, and say, Father... Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What kind of a man is that? I I read a a story I was telling them at lunch today. A story of an old historian. He watched a Christian getting spit on, beat, kicked in the dust. They're making fun of him. They stripped him down. They're holding him down with with their feet and they laugh at him and they say, Oh, Christian, what has Jesus taught you? Or what has Jesus done for you, they say. And he looks at them and he says, exactly what you see, you can do all this to me and I still love you. This is what Jesus does. Little by little, he makes us like those who can get their beards plucked. And listen, think about this. The people that beat the breath out of Christ, he was supplying breath for them while they did it. The hands that fashioned the earth chose to be fastened with nails. He who were the diadem of the ages accepts a crown of thorns. The all-seeing one consents to be blindfolded. What is this? This is what Jesus wants to make of us. There's only one way to do this. He hides you in the secret place of his presence. You say, Eric, Jesus didn't have the presence. He was the presence. <laughs> Jesus didn't have the Yes, he did. Hebrews 9 says that he actually offered himself by the Spirit. By the eternal spirit is the actual wording. Hebrews 9. He offered himself by the power of the spirit. This is incredible. It's the presence of God that was with him. So you see this there. You hide them in the secret place of your presence. Notice this too up there in um, take refuge in you. The first verse before take refuge in you. Secret place of your presence. So sometimes people ask me, is the secret place a specific place? Like what does it mean? What does the secret place? Is it a place? No, no, no. It's a state of being. Your secret place is his presence. No, 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 my secret place is my closet. I mean, I understand what you're saying, but it's not. Your secret place is far bigger than your closet. It's the recognition of a God who's everywhere. The secret place. How, did, how am I hid in there then? Because just like the deer runs into the water brooks to throw off the scent of its oppressors, its chasers, so you run into your consciousness of God's presence and it does this miracle on the inside and the enemy seems to not be able to find you. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting to me. But they're taking refuge in the Lord. The name of This is where I'll close out. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous, they run into it and they are saved. And there's a difference between knowing the name of the Lord and running into it. I I once was walking with my wife and it started to rain. And I, I said to her, don't worry, I know where a pavilion is. And she looks at me and she goes, well, take me to it. In other words, just knowing where the pavilion is wasn't gonna get her out from underneath the rain. We had to go underneath it. And something about when you go under or into the name of the Lord, as a matter of fact, the only way into the divine shadow is under. Under, you got to go low. You got to submit to him. What does it say? He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. The divine shadow is cast over you. you. You come underneath the pavilion of the Lord, and he doesn't stop the rain. He just removes you out from underneath its influence. You notice that? How many of you have had one moment, you become aware of God's presence and from 701 to 702, nothing's changed, but everything is different. How many of you have had, that's called the secret place of the Most High, where He hides you. Sometimes what He needs to hide me from is myself, <laughs> my own self-consciousness, and my own responses. So all this to say that the name of the Lord, and this is a study in and of itself, the name of the Lord is the presence of God. You say, how is it? Can I, can I show, can I just show you that the name of the Lord is the presence of the Lord? Is that okay? Real fast? Okay. Turn, turn over to Exodus. Just real quick. We'll just do this fast and then we'll be done. Exodus chapter 30, uh, 33, I think it's the same chapter we're in. Might be 34. Okay, okay, let's, let's look at uh, verse six, 34, verse six. The Lord passed by in front of him. This is when Moses wanted to see the glory. Remember, the glory. And he proclaimed, mm-hmm. the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, that he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That's the other side of the symmetry of God. He is so patient and so kind. But if you play around, you will not go unpunished. The Lord will strike down the wicked. The Lord will bring judgment to the world. It's going to happen. You cannot play with God. Whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap, period. It's going to happen. So this is the other side. So it goes on and it says, He will not leave the guilty unpunished. He visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren of the third and fourth generations. Moses made haste to bow down toward the earth to worship. He says, If now I found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray you, uh, let the Lord go in our, in our midst. So, so what he's saying is he asks for the glory, and what does the Lord do? he proclaims his name to him and he tells him that he's gracious and compassionate. So you have nature, you have glory and you have name and you have goodness. Cause he says, I'll let my goodness pass before you. So these things are all the same thing. The nature of the Lord, what he's like, his glory is what he's like. His, what he's like is his glory, and he is good, which is goodness. And his goodness is his glory. It's what he's like, and that is his name, his nature, and his name. And this is the presence of that person. The name of the Lord, you run underneath what he has revealed of himself to you. Isn't that beautiful? And look at what it did to, to Moses it caused him to worship. He threw himself down. I wonder if this is what Mary was mimicking, knowing this passage. You know, Mary knew the Bible because they were were Jews. I wonder if when her her brother uh, dies, I wonder if she throws herself down on the ground remembering this, the name of the Lord. I wonder if she threw herself down on the ground because she remembered Job, what he did when he lost his family members. He threw himself down on the ground and said, blessed be the name of the Lord. I wonder if there's something about the name of the Lord that needs to be kept closer in our hearts, that we run into it and underneath it, and we cherish the name, and we love the name of the Lord. David says, I love your name. What what is it? He he likes the sound of it? No, no, no. It's something so much more. It's his glory. It's his goodness. It's his nature. It's what he's revealed to you in his self-disclosure of what he's like. And when you believe that and you say, oh, I love your name, everything you've done for me. I see your compassion in my own life, my own history. I see your goodness. I see your presence. I see you here in me. I worship you, Lord. Praise God.